From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, the hidden world around us, the sights, smells, tastes, sounds, and vibrations that are imperceptible to humans but are perceived by various animals and insects. We talk with science writer Ed Young about his new book, An Immense World. Also, we hear from Angela Garbus, author of the new book, Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change. She says raising children shouldn't be as lonely, bankrupting, and exhausting as it is. Child care shouldn't be as expensive. And at the same time, young children's caregivers, who are so often black and brown women, shouldn't be so underpaid. And Justin Chang reviews two films about relationships between a younger man and an older woman. The films were well-received at this year's Sundance Film Festival and are now streaming. After reporting on the first year of the pandemic for The Atlantic, for which he won a Pulitzer Prize, my guest, science writer Ed Young, decided he needed to take a break. He wanted to shift his focus from the catastrophes and tragedies caused by COVID to a facet of the natural world he hoped would bring some joy to his life and to his readers. The result is his new book, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. It's almost like science fiction or the supernatural in that it describes the world that animals, birds, and insects perceive that humans can't. The sounds, smells, colors, vibrations, echoes, and magnetic fields that exist beyond the limits of our senses. He writes about animals with eyes on their genitals, ears on their knees, noses on their limbs, and tongues all over their skin. Some sensations that people perceive as pain aren't experienced as pain in certain species. As he puts it, Every animal, including humans, can only tap into a small fraction of reality's fullness. The book is about the diversity of perception in the animal world and the limitations of our own perception. Ed Yang wrote about sensory biology before the pandemic and is now back to writing about COVID. Ed Yang, welcome back to Fresh Air. Hi, thanks for having me. So your book is about how every animal, including us, is enclosed within its own sensory bubble as you put it, perceiving but a tiny sliver of an immense world, which leads to the world word umwelt, which is a word I'm sure you'll be using. So why don't you describe what it is? So umwelt um, was uh, popularized by a, a German biologist named Jakob von Uxkull. The word comes from the German for environment, but von Uxkull wasn't using it to mean the physical environment. Um, he meant the sensory environment, the unique set of smells, sights, sounds and textures that each animal has access to. And that might be unique to it, its own little bespoke sliver of reality. Um, so I'll give you an example. Like humans um, can see colours ranging from red to violet, but we don't. Uh, we aren't able to see the ultraviolet colours that actually most sighted animals can perceive. We can't detect the magnetic field of the earth that songbirds and sea turtles can. We can't detect um, the ultrasonic frequencies that bats use to navigate around them or that rats and mice use to send um, messages to each other that we can't hear. So every creature has these sensory limitations and is enclosed in its own particular sensory bubble, and that's what the Umwelt is. Where are you now? Uh, I am in my home in DC. Uh, I am in the recording studio slash shoe closet uh, of my bedroom, <laughs> or as my wife calls it, our studio. 
Okay, so it's not exactly a, a rich sensory environment. But if you, it is not. if you were one of the animals you were writing about, or insects or birds, what might you perceive in this studio slash closet that you can't perceive now? So um, at the start of the book, I do this exactly this thought experiment, right? I, I imagine that I'm uh, a human is sharing a physical space with a bunch of creatures, say a rattlesnake, an elephant, uh, a mouse, a dog. Um, it's hard to imagine all of those in the shoe closet with me. Uh, but but if we do, then the rattlesnake, for example, will be able to sense my body heat. Even if I switched off the light uh, in, in this closet, it would be able to detect my presence from the infrared radiation I was giving off. Um, a bird in this closet, even though it was surrounded by walls, would be able to detect the magnetic field of the earth and would know which direction uh, to fly if it was time to migrate. Um, a dog, uh, if my own dog, Typo, who's a corgi, was in this room, he'd almost certainly be sniffing around. He'd be picking up the odours um, that, uh, uh, that are abounding in this space and that I cannot detect. Um, so, you know, at, at each of these creatures, uh, you, you, we could all be sharing exactly the same physical space and have a radically different experience of that space. And that's what an immense world is about. It's about going through these um, adventures, these sensory voyages by considering the umwelten of other animals. Let's talk a little bit about vision. Um, you mentioned ultraviolet light, which we cannot see. All the colors we see are based on three colors, blue, yellow, and red. Although I really don't understand exactly. Red, green, and blue. Red, green, and blue. Wait, I thought green was blue and yellow. So um, you're thinking about primary colors like with paints. Um, for light, it's different. So for light, it's based on no red, green, R and blue. Really? Oh, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> Okay, so we see red, green, and, and blue? Yes, we have three kinds of color-sensitive cells in our eyes that are most sensitive to red, green, and blue. So what are we missing? Like um, for insects that can see, or, or butterflies, I guess, that can see ultraviolet light, what are we missing, for instance, in flowers, which are beautiful enough with what we can see, but what are we missing? Uh, so flowers uh, absolutely are extraordinarily beautiful. Um, but if you had the ultraviolet vision that a bee has, you'll be able to see patterns on those flowers that, that we can't see. So a sunflower, for example, far from looking um, just uh, uh, a matte, ye a uniform yellow, would have a stark ultraviolet bullseye at its centre. A lot of flowers have these ultraviolet shapes, um, like arrows and bullseyes to guide insects towards the pollen at their center. Um, some uh, predators um, that eat pollinating insects, like crab spiders, um, blend in when uh, blend in against the flowers to our eyes, but really stand out when viewed in ultraviolet, and that acts as a lure to insects. It draws them in towards the waiting spider. One of my favorite things about the, the relationship between insect vision and, and flowers um, is that if you took all the colors um, in all the flowers that were out there and you asked what kind of eye, what kind of color vision is best at discriminating between these colors, what you get is an eye that's basically almost what a bee has, uh, an eye that um, is maximally sensitive to blue, green, and ultraviolet. 
And you might think then that the bee eye has evolved to see the colours of flowers really well. And that's exactly the opposite of what happened, because the bee eye came first, the flowers evolved later. And so the colours of flowers have evolved to ideally tickle the eyes of bees. And I think that's a, a truly wondrous result. It means that um, beauty as we know it is not only in the eye of the beholder, it arises because of that eye. Eyes in viewing nature's palettes also affect its paintings. Oh, it's really form follows function. <laughs> yes, right. Um, so what exactly is UV light? I mean, we know it's used to like sanitize things and, you know, like my electric toothbrush has a UV light in the little cleanser unit. But in terms of vision, like what is it and why can't we usually see it? Like the UV light in my toothbrush thing, um, when I turn it on to clean the toothbrush, I see blue. Maybe that's just a blue light bulb. I don't know. Yeah, right. right. That's the blue part of the light that you you can see. Um, so our we can see light ranging from red to violet. Right. It's the it's the classic rainbow of colors that we can perceive. Ultraviolet, literally beyond violet, exists beyond the violet end. It's just off its edge. Now there's a huge range of UV light that includes the stuff that uh, causes sunburn and that you know you, we we use to sanitize our world. But there's also a section of it near. UV that exists quite close to that violet that we can see um, that uh, effectively paints nature. You know, it's it's there in, in flowers, like we've said. It's there on the feathers of birds. And most other animals that can see colour can see that UV. We didn't used to think that. We used to think that it was special, that seeing ultraviolet was rare. And that, I think, reflects um, how much the limits of our own senses affect our view of the world. We, we think of things that... Uh, have different umwelt and that see differently to us as being extraordinary, whereas in fact often they are they are very typical. Um, so you know, many but most birds can see ultraviolet. Most insects can do it. A lot of other mammals can do it. We're actually quite weird in not being able to see ultraviolet. Um, for a long time, scientists used to think that ultraviolet was a sort of secret communication channel that animals used to uh, to send coded like hidden messages that um that uh other creatures could not see sometimes that is the case there are for example um fish that look uh, completely uniform yellow but if you uh, look at them through ultraviolet um you see that they have like distinct patterns on their faces almost like running mascara um but in the main those messages aren't secret because most animals can actually see them ultraviolet abounds in the world around us and there's just a ton of stuff that we're missing you know there there are loads of birds for example including common backyard birds where we think the males and females look exactly the same, but they'll look very different to each other because they can see the ultraviolet patterns that distinguish um, the sexes. So scallops have a lot of eyes. I never thought about whether scallops even had eyes, but they have an eye at the end of each of their mobile tentacles. So how do they work and how do they co coordinate? It sounds very like sense around Yes, um, it, it is and it isn't. So for most of us, our experience of scallops is just uh, is going to be a, a tasty puck of flesh, um, 
you know, seared in butter and garlic. Um, that's just part of the entire animal. If you look at the uh, entire animal and its beautiful shell, on the rim of that shell, there'll be dozens of eyes, possibly hundreds in some species. For some scallops, those eyes are really beautiful. They look like neon blueberries. Um, and you would think then that the eyes give scallops this beautiful um, vision of the world so that they would uh, have this sort of image that's uh, the sum total of what their um, dozens or hundreds of eyes see. But it's not quite like that. Um, scallops are very simple brains uh, and too simple to really create this composite view from, from what their eyes do. Um, trying to imagine the visual world of scallops is quite difficult. The, the way I imagine it, um, imagine that you the scallop is like a security guard looking at a bank of uh, monitors. Each of those monitors represents the view from uh, one single eye. And that eye is good. It has good optics. It's a decent um, uh, state-of-the-art camera. But what it feeds to the monitor is the simplest possible information. It's just, have I detected something interesting or not? So the scallop, the security guard, doesn't see a, a bank of dozens or hundreds of images. It just sees like, say, maybe a green light. So something that says, yes, there's something interesting over here that I can then explore with my other senses like touch or smell. It effectively sees without scenes. And that's, I think, very difficult for some, for you know, a species like us to imagine. For me, vision is um, completely inextricable with this like movie-like representation of the world around me. I can see in rich detail everything that's in this weirdly small closet. Um, but if I was a scallop. I wouldn't be able to do that. I would have some visual awareness of the world around me, but I wouldn't have this um, detailed image um, that, that is so um, synonymous with vision for a human. My guest is Ed Young, a science writer for The Atlantic. His new book is called An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. And Justin Chang will review two films about a relationship between a younger man and an older woman. Both films are now streaming. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to my interview with Ed Young, a science writer for The Atlantic. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of COVID. His new book is about how animal senses allow them to perceive sounds, smells, sights, echoes, magnetic fields, and more that humans are incapable of perceiving with their senses. It's called An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. Let's talk about echolocation. Why don't you explain what it is? Echolocation is a, a very advanced form of hearing that a lot of animals like bats and dolphins use to perceive the world around them. So they make uh, high-pitched ultrasonic calls um, beyond the range of human hearing, and they listen out for um, the echoes of those calls after they've rebounded off objects around the animal. And by listening for those echoes and, and uh, passing those echoes, they get a sense of the world around them. A bat in complete darkness can find, track, and swoop upon a flying insect. Um, it can navigate through the darkness of a cave. It can wend its way around obstacles, all by using this incredibly sophisticated uh, type of hearing. So I want to talk about another side of bats for a moment, because on the one hand, like, bats are remarkable. They have echolocation. It's something we don't have. We don't have this ultrasonic 
sound ability. At the same time, now when we think of bats, we're thinking bats may have been the origin of COVID. Bats may have been one of the origins of monkeypox. It's named monkeypox because it was discovered first in a monkey, but it spread initially by rodents. At least that's what scientists think now. So when you think of bats, do you think like, oh, they're amazing and like, oh, they're real trouble? <laughs> right. Um, bats do act as reservoirs for um, viruses. Um, I don't think that they deserve a bad reputation because of that, though. Um, you know, they are extraordinary creatures with extraordinary senses. Um, you know, it's the the fact that we are in trouble now with COVID and multiple other diseases isn't the fault of bats. In in many ways, it's to do with how we have reshuffled the natural world around us and uh, crunched down the amount of space that other animals have. Um, you know, we've sort of intruded upon their worlds. And, and um, you know, we, I've written before that it's like humanity have, has crushed the world's wildlife um, in a tight fist and viruses have spilled out of that as a result. You know, in, in, in many ways, this book is a, uh, is a chance to talk about the incredible things that bats do and the uh, wonderful ways of perceiving the world that might be lost if we um, persecuted bats or if we continued um, uh, uh, the, the practices that um, reduce the habitats and, and harm them. Even the kinds of bats that are the most likely reservoirs of SARS and other related viruses have this absolutely extraordinary skill. They have taken echolocation um, to, to extreme heights. Um, so a bat typically um, creates a high-pitched call that covers a range of frequencies, uh, and it's listening out for the echoes that come back. Um, these specific kinds of bats, the, the uh, horseshoe bats of Asia, create a call that is very much like a, a single tone. Like they just hold a note, and they listen, and they their ears are tuned to the very specific frequency that they put out. That allows them to detect um, very specifically the fluttering wings of insects. As an insect beats its wing, there comes a point where the wing is exactly angled to the bat as to return a very sharp echo. And that's what the bat is looking for with this um, very specifically toned call. Can we compare the bat's echolocation with an animal that is really, really different, dolphins? Because they use echolocation too. They're different in terms of the environment they live in, their size, their needs. So could you compare them? Yes. Um, bats and dolphins are the two masters of, of echolocation in the animal kingdom. And um, in some ways, they, they use it to similar purposes. But they, the difference between them is mostly because uh, dolphins are echolocating in the water. Uh, their calls travel much further. And so for them, echolocation is a much longer range sense than it is for bats. A bat can only really detect a small moth within um, several feet in front of it. Uh, a dolphin echolocation can extend much, much further. And that allows dolphins, for example, to use echolocation um, to coordinate their movements, uh, to coordinate their, their hunting strategies over the distance of an entire pod. 
Um, dolphins can also use echolocation um, kind of like a medical scanner. Um, they can detect um, hard surfaces that uh, that exist inside other animals. You know, a dolphin echolocating on a human could likely see your skeleton, could likely see um, your lungs. Dolphins can, uh, through echolocation, detect the swim bladders um, inside the fish that they hunt. They can probably tell the difference between different kinds of prey by the shape of their um, swim bladders. So they have this incredible um, uh, uh, see-through ability, um, but except it's not really to do with vision, right? It's to do with sound. So uh, this was amazing to me. You write that dolphins can visually recognize objects that they first identified through echolocation. They can even identify the object on a video screen. That seems implausible to me. Right. Uh, absolutely. Because uh, when you think about sound, um, you don't think of creating this rich three-dimensional representation of an object. You know, if I heard um, the, the, if I heard a recording of someone playing a saxophone, I would appreciate it. But there's no way I could go from that to like recreating the 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 shape of a sex saxophone in my mind. But op dolphins actually are doing that with sound. They can echolocate on an object. They can then work out. They they it seems as if they build a physical model of what that object looks like, its shape, maybe its texture, which they then can use as fodder for their other senses. So they can recognize, say, on a screen, the shape of an object that they previously echolocated upon. Um, and, and that is extraordinary. I think that speaks to not only their weird, weird sensory worlds, but how those extraordinary senses can be deployed by an extremely intelligent animal. I really like the way you end the book. Um, and you write about how most people think of the majesty of nature as being like canyons and mountains. But you write, equating wilderness with otherworldly magnificence treats it as something remote, accessible only to those with the privilege to travel and explore. It imagines that nature is something separate from humanity rather than something we exist within. Can you talk about that realization? Yeah, um, th this speaks to to my earlier point that if you start thinking about the umwelt of other animals, you understand that nature's magnificence is all around us. It's in our backyards. It's in our gardens. Um, you know, it's in the bodies of some of the most familiar creatures around us. My dog, um, the pigeons on the street. Um, I think that if we think of nature as something um, remote uh, and distant, you know, accessible only to someone who can go to a national park, we we lose the impetus to to savor and to protect it. I think if you understand instead that nature is everywhere, that you can go, I can go on an adventure just by thinking about the sensory world of the sparrow that sits on the house opposite me. Um, I think then nature feels like something close to me, close to my heart and close to my life. And I feel like if that's the case, people will be more motivated to try and protect it. You know, protecting nature isn't just about like saving whales or pandas or what have you. It's about protecting even things that are close to us. And because each of those things has a unique way of experiencing the world that is worth learning about, worth cherishing and worth protecting. Ed Young, it's been a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks, Terry. Always a pleasure talking to you. 
Ed Young is a science writer for The Atlantic. His new book is called An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. Two well-received movies from this year's virtual Sundance Film Festival are now streaming. Good luck to you, Leo Grand, starring Emma Thompson as a retired widow who hires a sex worker, is showing on Hulu. And Cha-Cha Real Smooth, starring Cooper Reif and Dakota Johnson, is on Apple TV+. Our film critic Justin Chang is going to review them both. The Sundance hits Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, and Cha-Cha Real Smooth have a couple of things in common. They both mix comedy and drama and have somewhat odd, unwieldy titles. They both focus on a hazily defined relationship between a younger man and an older woman. And while I definitely prefer one to the other, both movies are well worth your time. The better of the two is Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, a funny and strikingly intimate British chamber piece that unfolds almost entirely between two people in a hotel room. Emma Thompson plays Nancy, a retired schoolteacher in her 50s, and Daryl McCormick plays Leo Grand, the 20-something sex worker she's hired. After a stable but unexciting long marriage to a husband who died two years earlier, Nancy now wants to have the kind of sex she's always dreamed of. But she's also extremely nervous and embarrassed, and initially tries to talk herself and Leo out of their arrangement, at which point Leo gently reminds her that there's no shame in expressing or fulfilling her desires. You don't have to worry, Nancy. This is just about us tonight. So what is your fantasy? Um, I'm not sure you could really class it as a fantasy as such. It's a bit mundane for that. Okay, well... What would you most desire? I mean, desires are never mundane. Um, to have sex tonight um, with you. That's about it, really, for the moment. Great. Nancy and Leo do eventually have sex on multiple occasions. The movie, elegantly directed by Sophie Hyde, from a sharp script by Katie Brand, takes place over four separate appointments, all at the same hotel. But most of the action takes place before the sex, as the characters talk about what they're about to do, and Leo helps Nancy work through her fears. Confronting issues of ageism and sexism in a very different way from her 2019 comedy, Late Night, Emma Thompson brilliantly teases out Nancy's desires and her insecurities about those desires. She frets about her age, her body, and the fact that she's never done anything like this before. At times, she projects her worries onto Leo, pressing him about his personal background, Leo Grand isn't his real name, and whether he ever feels degraded by his work. Daryl McCormick, an Irish actor known for the series Peaky Blinders, is superb as a young man who's very good at doing his job and defending it from the judgments of others. The sex scenes strike a fine balance of discretion and frankness, and Thompson has one nude scene that boldly challenges the idea that a middle-aged woman's body is unworthy of the camera's attention. At times, the movie feels like a PSA, aimed at promoting sex positivity and debunking outdated assumptions about women's desire. I mean that as a compliment. All PSAs should be this entertaining. The other movie, Cha-Cha Real Smooth, is about a much more chaste but similarly ambiguous relationship. Cooper Rife, the movie's writer, director, and star, plays Andrew, a 22-year-old college grad 
who's living back at home with his hard-working mom, grumpy stepdad, and adoring younger brother. Andrew lacks direction, but he's also charismatic and smart, with a natural gift for befriending other people. One night, he single-handedly jump-starts a low-energy bar mitzvah party, even talking a shy, autistic teenager named Lola, winningly played by newcomer Vanessa Berghart, onto the dance floor. He also meets Lola's mom, Domino, played by a terrific Dakota Johnson, and becomes immediately smitten with her. Domino clearly returns Andrew's affections up to a point, but she also holds herself back for a couple of reasons. She's engaged, for one thing, and wary of introducing more upheaval into her family's life. But Andrew also provides some stability, especially when he becomes a good friend and occasional babysitter to Lola. Cha-Cha Real Smooth won an Audience Award at this year's Sundance, and it sometimes too closely resembles any number of Sundance-premiered indies about restless 20-something screw-ups. Cooper Reif is a real talent and a charming screen presence, but while you can sense him trying to tell a nuanced, emotionally honest story, he also really, really wants you to like Andrew, to see how amazing he is, despite his many questionable decisions. I wanted a little less of him, and a lot more of Domino, the more intriguing and complicated figure by far. Dakota Johnson might just be one of the most interesting actors working today, and she's the reason to watch this likable, but not entirely satisfying, movie. Justin Chang is film critic for the LA Times. He reviewed Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, and Cha-Cha Real Smooth. Coming up, we'll talk with Angela Garbus. Her new book, Essential Labor, is about how the work of mothering in the U.S. has always been undervalued and undercompensated. By mothering, she means the work of raising children, and that includes all people who help raise children, mothers, fathers, nannies, daycare workers, and preschool teachers. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Like a lot of parents during the COVID lockdown, especially mothers, my next guest, Angela Garbus, had to stop working and become a full-time parent because she no longer had daycare. Although she loves being a mother, during this period she experienced a loss of identity and clinical depression. She abandoned the book she had been writing and instead wrote an article about what women lost during that period. The article was retweeted by Elizabeth Warren and went viral. That led to Garbus's new book, Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change. The book is about how the work of mothering in the U.S. has always been undervalued and undercompensated. By mothering, she means the work of raising children, and that includes all people who help raise children, mothers, fathers, extended family, nannies, daycare workers, preschool teachers, babysitters, domestic help, and friends. She describes mothering as the invisible economic engine driving our culture. This is also an issue related to race and class, since the underpaid child care professionals are often women of color. Garbus's parents immigrated from the Philippines after her mother became a registered nurse and her father a pathologist. In the book, she writes about how the Philippines became the care workers of the world. She says the Philippines is by far the leading supplier of nurses to America. Garbus's previous book, Like a Mother, was about the science and culture of pregnancy. Angela Garbus, welcome back to Fresh Air. Tell us more about how it felt to not have daycare and not be able to write because you were constantly involved with parenting. And even when your husband was officially on parenting duty, you were 
interrupted by your children a lot. Yeah, um, it was... It was complicated, I will say. Um, in many ways, I felt so sure. And if you go back, you know, to those early days of the pandemic when we didn't know what was happening, we didn't understand this virus. I remember thinking we could all get COVID from our groceries, right? Oh, it felt I remember. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, when we were disinfecting our mail and, you know, my hands were red and peeling from so much, as my daughter calls it, sanitizer. Um it, it felt really clear to me that the most important thing I could be doing was not writing. It was not writing. It was not making a podcast. It was taking care of my family, taking care of my children and keeping them safe, and also taking care of my community. And that meant pulling away, you know, living in isolation. And so I felt so strongly that's what I should be doing. It was the most important thing I could be doing day in and day out. But I also felt... Um, you know, as you mentioned, I really, I like caregiving. <laughs> I like cooking. I like taking care of people. I like cuddling. I like reading. But I really felt like I was watching the pleasure and the color drain from my life. So it felt very one-dimensional. And I felt like someone who was just a caregiver. And while I knew that that was valuable work, I had to confront that that wasn't enough for me. And so I, there was a time when I really just wished my desire to create would die. <laughs> and then I thought, you know, I could at least start over then and maybe I could be satisfied um, with the life that I had. Um, yeah. And as far as my husband working, we were, you know, he's the person that had a regular paycheck. As a writer, I have, you know, deadlines on the horizon. It's all very nebulous, you know, when, when my work is due. And, you know, there were no regular paychecks. There was no health insurance coming our way from my work, but we were getting those from him. So it was easy for me to say, let's prioritize your work. But he has always insisted, we have always, this is a part of our marriage where we say, you know, my work is not more important than your work. It's, it's equal. But um, so he would say, take your time, like go right, go lock yourself in the guest room, put on the noise canceling headphones and do what you can do. And my children couldn't respect that boundary. There were basically no boundaries within our home. But also I felt my ability to uphold those boundaries kind of slipping away. And my therapist said something that was very useful. Um, she said, maybe you need to make a sign that says, mama is working. And you put it outside of the office. And I did that. And honestly, Terry, the, the sign was more for me. Like, <laughs> it was me insisting on that, mm -hmm. right? Because, I mean, also only one of my children could read at that point. Right? Yeah, how, so, how old were they in 2020? They were five and two. Mm -hmm. um, and now they are seven and four, and the seven-year-old is soon to be eight. And I guess the four-year-old can't really read. She couldn't read a sentence. She's pretty good with stringing her letters together. But but yeah, it was, I needed to create that boundary. Um, did, did you feel guilty about not feeling fulfilled by full-time parenting? You know, I hate to admit it, but yes. <laughs> in general, I... I reject guilt and I reject the guilt that many mothers feel because I think that is, I'm not the problem. You know, individuals are not the problem. It's a system and the culture that we live in that doesn't value care work and that doesn't value mothers and that doesn't value women. And I know that, you know, rationally, but um, when you're just doing this day in and day out and there feels like no relief, I really struggled. And yes, I felt guilty that I wanted more. Because I also believe that every parent 
is a working parent, whether they work outside of the home or not. And I know that there are people who can who feel fulfilled by caregiving and by their duties as a parent or as a mother. And I support that. And I think everyone should be able to feel that way. But I had to confront that that wasn't enough for me. You write about the rage of mothers. And you, oh, say, yeah. you, say, you say you half jokingly uh, asked your husband if mothers could unionize. And he said to you, but who would you complain to? Right. Yeah. <laughs> who to file a complaint <laughs> with? And I think the answer was maybe the government. Yes. I mean, I certainly, we've seen some of that, right? Like this rage of mothers. Um, you know, there have been organizations formed. There was, during the pandemic, there was something called the Marshall Plan for Moms. Um, and the Marshall Plan referring to the plan that came out after World War II to help families to guarantee some income and um, a standard of life in America. And then we also saw something called the Chamber of Mothers form, which is a lot more people who work in like, you know, um, the corporate world, but saying like, we need to acknowledge that, you know, America doesn't have a social safety net. America has mothers. And, you know, there are two million less women in the professional workforce right now than there were at the start of the pandemic. And the statistic that always stays with me in, is in September of 2020, 865,000 women left, I mean, I don't want to say left, were forced out of the workforce, really, um, in one month. And that was because schools remained closed. And that was, you know, people who were saying, essentially, like, I can't be a mother, be an online school proctor, and be a professional worker at the same time. It's just too much. And so I think, like, that anger, which, you know, the, as I mentioned, you know, this care crisis, as we talk about it, it predates the pandemic. And a lot of us were more familiar, you know, with the financial hardship of having kids in daycare. Um, so people have been making these decisions and logistical negotiations for years, but suddenly it was a problem that affected everyone. And that's when we really saw a lot of that anger. And um, I felt like there was attention being paid. There were some articles, including mine, you know, that are basically like, women are not okay. Mothers are not okay. And then we saw things like the advanced child tax credit, which was the government sort of acknowledging, um, yeah, this is hard work, having families and raising children, and so we're going to give you some money um, each month. And that funding for the CTC was allocated for a year. And in December, Congress let that lapse, even though the funding had been set aside. It was in trying to figure out, build back better. You know, that, I guess that was like collateral damage or just something that we were willing to let go of. And I feel a certain amount of anger at lawmakers and some anger at Democrats and at the administration um, that I voted in because that administration, you know, also bargained away paid leave, which was something that the Biden administration ran on. So, yeah, I feel like we are losing that momentum and we're losing some of the energy behind that very righteous anger that so many women and parents felt. In, in talking about race and class and how that pertains to child care and how undervalued and underpaid it is, professional child care, it's interesting to talk about your experiences visiting the Philippines where your parents grew up. They uh, immigrated to the U.S. when they were in their 20s. Yeah. And they grew up with domestic workers, mm -hmm. um, with, you know, uh, a maid, child care at home. 
And you, you've visited the Philippines with them. You've been exposed to it. So I want to talk about that and what you learned about race and class and child care and, and domestic help comparing the Philippines to, to the U.S. So I'm assuming, let's start with this. I'm assuming that in the Philippines, the people who were the domestic workers and child care workers at home were also from the Philippines. Yes, they are. And oftentimes they come from the provinces, um, so, you know, more rural areas. And domestic work is, is an economic opportunity for them. So, so, so race and ethnicity are not an issue with that. I mean, I think it is. I mean, there's within um, maybe the Philippines, ethnicity. there's so yeah, many, right. yeah, there's so mm-hmm. many different cultures. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because the Philippines was a Spanish colony for 400 years and a American colony for the first half of the 20th century, certainly, you know, most, pe- most I'm generalizing here, but most people who are upper class are light skinned um, or maybe have some Spanish blood in them. So there is an element of race. Um, but it's definitely, yeah, an issue of ethnicity. So it's all, you know, it's all there, but it's, but they're, you know, to, to use the blanket term, they're all Filipino. They're domestic workers who are literally domestic people, right, from within the country. And so, I mean, I saw that growing up and, you know, my, I was raised with literally my mother saying, clean your plate, wash dishes, you make your bed, you put away your clothes because I am not your maid. And when we went back to the Philippines, there's always a maid. <laughs> and this was something that I really had to contend with. And, you know, you don't, in the Philippines too, it's so normalized. You don't have to be filthy rich to have domestic help. Um, most families do. Because in a country that is still developing and that has, is economically disadvantaged, unfortunately, there's usually someone poorer than you. So that was something that I just didn't understand, you know, and I felt uncomfortable by, with it at first because I didn't know how to treat them. Um, I saw how valuable they were in the family from house to house. Sometimes they were treated like very intimately, like familiars. There's one woman, Atacelia, who I have known for pretty much my entire life, who has worked for my Genie's family for over 40 years, who is an integral member of the family. But there's obviously a power differential. And so I don't know exactly what I've learned. I'm sorting through it through it very actively, and I'm definitely doing that in the book. But one of the things that st- strikes me is that it does feel like a more honest way of living in the sense that there's a team of people to provide childcare, to clean the house, and to cook three meals a day. The idea that that's too much for one or two people to do. And so... That's why when I see in America us outsourcing that work, I think if you can afford that, I I don't want to take that away from you. I want to figure out a way (laughs) for those people to make a living wage, and I want to figure out a way for more people to be able to feel less less burdened by our caregiving. When your mother immigrated to the U.S. after becoming a nurse when she was in her 20s, um, her mother-in-law offered to send someone with her to help with house cleaning and eventually childcare, assuming that she was going to have children, which which she did. And your mother declined. How did she explain to you why she declined having somebody from the Philippines accompany her and your father to America to help them? Yeah, I thought it might be a tough decision for her, but she was very clear. She was actually raised by... Um, maids and nannies. They call them yayas in the Philippines. And I think that she missed, honestly, I think she missed that connection with her mother. (laughs) And so I think there was a little bit of, 
that. And she also said, you know, having maids means they hear everything you say. And so you have no privacy. (laughs) So that was another factor for her. And she said, and this is the thing that I've come to, upon reflection, see a lot more meaning in, is that she said, you know, I want to be responsible for what happens in my family. And I also don't want to be responsible for somebody else. I think she saw it as a duty, another caretaking duty, to have someone else there. And I think she also was aware, like, this concept of sending someone, you know, giving someone a person, it made her uncomfortable. The idea that someone would be part of her family who didn't have necessarily an active say or choice in that. How has your experience seeing the domestic workers at your grandparents' homes and watching your mother reject that kind of work in her own home, how has that affected your attitude about having a nanny or a babysitter um, or, or, you know, daycare? Daycare, you're sending your child outside, and so you don't have somebody in your home. You're not responsible for that person. You're not directly paying that person. Um, so, like, when you were trying to decide which approach you wanted to take— Were you informed at all by your family's experiences with domestic help? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, I I knew that I couldn't do it alone. My husband and I knew that. We were sort of, we were naive. I think we were actually pretty uh, devastated to realize how expensive it was to figure out childcare. Um, You know, we who had, you know, when my first daughter was born, we both had full-time jobs and it was still, um, it was very hard to make ends meet. And so we relied on a mix of things. Um, my mother helped us, and that was unpaid labor. Uh, we did a nanny share with two other families who we had very clear conversations. This woman was a, a woman from Mexico, and we wanted to make sure she, you know, she would take care of two to three babies at a time in um, these other two homes. And we made sure we had a meeting where we were paying her at least $15 an hour, and we gave her a month off every year. And she was welcome to bring her son, who was about three, to the home where she was caring for the children. So um, I make decisions uh, where I feel like I am paying f- people as as much as I can, um, as fairly as I can, and that I am giving them time off. Um, I treat it like a real labor Negotiation, And I should say also that my husband is a union organizer. So these issues happen to be top of mind for us. Um, and then when it was time to choose a daycare and a preschool, um, we made a decision to go with a school. It's essentially a private school, but it's a bilingual program where most of my daughter's authority figures for the first four years of their lives have been brown women who speak English as a second language. Um, And they also have a curriculum that's rooted in social justice um, and pride in culture. And every May, the theme of the month is workers of the world. So I felt like we were giving them, you know, something more than uh, valuing these teachers for being more than just, you know, someone minding our children. Um, We think of them as integral to um, the work of mothering, and we could not do this work without them. Angela Garbus, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. I hope you and your family stay well. Thank you, Terry. Angela Garbus is the author of the new book, Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. 
Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberto Shorrock, Sam Brugger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Boldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross. <laughs>